My name's Adam, and I'm the director of student ministries here. I've got 20 minutes to talk at you. So, Thanksgiving weekend. It's a great weekend. I don't think it would be a true Thanksgiving service if I didn't tell you what I was thankful for. So I'm going to start with that. I am thankful for life every single day I wake up, and I thank God that he's allowed me to live one more day. I'm thankful for my wife, not the fact that I have one, because that's cool, but I'm thankful specifically that it's a jade. I'm thankful for my two precious, sweet little princesses, Lennon and Everly, who are full of life, and they love living it, and it's just fantastic. Thankful for my parents, who never gave up on me growing up. Thankful for my ministry, and I'm thankful for all the students that I've had the pleasure over the years of loving and leading, and thankful for coffee, because <laughs> I love coffee. That's why I can wake up every day and live another day. Thankful for all these things, but even so, even with all of those things that are, I'm thankful for, those all pale in comparison to what I want to share with you guys this morning and what I'm ultimately thankful for. And I want to I wanna really just jump in to the text with you and study it together. It's a, it's a text that a lot of you probably have heard or read numerous times about the prodigal son. But when, when I found out I was preaching, there were two passages that I wanted to preach that I've wanted to preach for a while, and this is one of them. So I'm really excited to open up God's word, and I'm really excited to talk through the prodigal son um, story with you. So let's go to Luke chapter 15. Let's go together, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you have a copy of scripture, whether that's your phone or a physical copy, whatever that is, go ahead and turn to Luke 15. We, we're going to be in verse 1 and 2 to start. All right, so uh, chapter 15, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's a little bit of frustration on the part of the religious leaders. See, uh, Jesus was attracting tax collectors and sinners. And this was pretty true throughout his ministry and his life on earth. But the self-righteous religious leaders of the day didn't really like that too much. Because in that day, if you were associating with sinners, or if you were having a meal um, with sinners, that was really looked down upon. When you had a meal with somebody, usually that was a sign of acceptance, of accepting who they are and accepting their lifestyle in a way. So by Jesus having a meal with them and spending time with them, that would mean in a way in their, in their mind that he was accepting them, which was true, but that was, that was very ludicrous to them, that he would be spending so much time With them, So they're concerned about that. And then in verse three, it says, so he told them this parable. So as a result of their grumbling and their frustration, he wants to tell them a few stories and kind of in in story form, explain to to them why he does this, why he lives this way and why he reaches out to the tax collectors and the sinners. So the first story he tells is about a shepherd who loses a sheep. And he leaves 99 other sheep, and it says not like in a, an enclosed pasture, but like out in the, in the open fields. He leaves them. 
just so he can go and find this one lost sheep. And when he comes home with the sheep around his shoulders, he throws a giant party. And verse seven tells us that Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so right away, he's saying, look, the sinner and the tax collector are very, very important. That's who I came for. And when they come to know me, there's a celebration. The second one he tells is about a woman who loses a coin in her house. And so she cleans house top to bottom. And she is in desperate search of this coin. And when she finally finds it, she goes door to door to her neighbors to let them know that she found her lost coin. Like, can you imagine one of your neighbors like knocking on your door? Dude, don't worry, I found the nickel, right? What the heck? So she's so excited, finds this lost coin, and then Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She is so excited at the fact that she found one lost coin, and Jesus is saying, the point is, is that there is joy and celebration before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then, he gets to the third story. And while the first two were dealing with kind of a thing, right? You have a sheep, you have a coin. Well, now he starts dealing, telling a story about an actual human being. And so this is gonna hit a little bit closer to home once he starts explaining things. So let's go to verse 11 and look at the story of the prodigal son. And we're just gonna read it together and talk about it a little bit before we get to application. So here's what it says in verse 11. Jesus, again, is talking and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So what the younger son was essentially saying is, Dad, I want your things, but I don't want you. Why was he saying that? Because usually in that time, the settlement of the estate, in other words, the inheritance that is passed down from father to sons, that's usually not done until the father is dead. So by the son coming to his dad, the younger son is an even bigger deal because the older son would have gotten his first, but the younger son comes and says, all right, dad, I'm done with you. I'm done with this life. I'm done with this family. I'm done with this village. I'm done with everything here. I want my inheritance. You're dead to me. Give it to me so I can go, right? So this is the younger son coming to his father. And what's really, really interesting to me in this moment is that the father doesn't rebuke the son. The father doesn't stop the son, the father just allows him to go. That's important, keep that in your mind. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So that's the son's request. And then in verse 13, you see what the son does. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So we have here just in those few verses, a beautiful, in a way, depiction of depravity. Jesus lays out the desperation of humanity right here in these few verses when we're left to our own devices, when it's up to us, when it's our choices, when we determine what our life will look like, it doesn't usually turn out well. So let's look, I wanna look a little bit deeper into that because I think it's really cool and I've never heard it 
explained this way, but if you think about the son and his journey and the depiction of sin that that is, we see a lot of things about our sin. So the first thing we see is that sin leaves us distant from God. So you see first and foremost that the son goes to a far country. He goes far away. He leaves everything in his past so far away that it's easily forgotten for a time and he just goes to a really, really far away country. And so just like us, sin leaves us distant from God. And then the second thing we see is that sin causes us to live recklessly. He goes on a spending spree. He goes and he squanders all of his wealth. It's not driven by wisdom or maturity by any means. It's driven by lust and materialism. And you see how that ends up. Squandered in reckless living. And part of that reckless living, it's not explained there, but we see later in verse 30 that as a part of that, there was a lot of prostitution involved. And so he was spending his money on things that were dangerous and that were really reckless, as it says. So sin causes us to be reckless. Also, we see that sin causes us to be in need. Sin causes us to be in need. Nothing is ever enough. And after he spends everything, he has massive famine comes. And so now he has, he has no way to buy any food to, to help as this famine is just weighing down on him. And so he has no choice but to find a job working with pigs. To us, we go, well, that's gross. Yeah, that's gross, but there's a really deep level of that that shows an even more disgraceful decision because it would be assumed, as Jesus is telling this story, that the man was a Jew. And Jews can't touch pigs. And so he wasn't just getting this low-level, like nasty, filthy job. He was, he was really turning his back on, on who he was, who his family was and his religion by going and feeding these pigs. I mean, he wasn't just like, you know, feeding them and then like running away. Like, I didn't touch them. I mean, it says in there that he was, he was longing for something to eat. He was, he was in the muck and he was down in the filth with the pigs trying to get a bite of what they were eating. That's not like petting a pig and like, oh, I accidentally did that. I'm a Jew, I shouldn't have done that. Like he's down there with his body like squeezing in there. I mean, this is like shame at its lowest level. And so sin causes us to be in need and takes us places that we, we wouldn't imagine being. And then fourthly, sin leaves us dead. It leaves us dead and lost. We see later in the passage, and I don't wanna spoil it if you haven't heard it, but his father declares, my son was dead. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. By the way, this term sin that we keep throwing out there would be anything we do against God's character, the thing that causes us to be separated from God, anything that God wants us to do and commands us to do, if we do the opposite, that is sin, it leaves us distant. So sin, this word that I'm kind of throwing around, is anything that would, would cause us to be separated from God. So this is us. This is us apart from Jesus. We're distant we're reckless, we're destitute, and we're in need, and we're dead. And it's so desperate. It's such a desperate place to be. But then he remembers something. Let's look at verse 17 through 19. This is where it really starts getting good and where I'll start getting chills. And if you know me, something might come out of my face. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired 
servants. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Luke, he says, when we find the insufficiency of creatures to make us happy and have tried all other ways of relief for our poor souls in vain, then it is time to think of returning to God. When we see what miserable comforters, what physicians of no value all but Christ are for a soul that groans under the guilt and power of sin and no man gives unto us what we need, then surely we shall apply ourselves to Jesus Christ. Nothing else had worked. No one was willing to help him. People will, will never ultimately satisfy. Things will never ultimately satisfy. Money will, will never ultimately satisfy. Nothing is going to bring us satisfaction apart from Christ. And so this man decides to humble himself to the position of one of his father's hired servants. Now, by the way, in this time, there were different types of workers. You had, you had workers that were, would live on site. If you were a man of wealth, you would have people who would live on your estate and they would work for you day in and day out. They were taken care of, had food taken care of, had clothing on their back. But then you had a hired servant and this was more like a day laborer. Like you would fight just to get a job for a few hours in a day to make base minimum. Like it, he wanted to just come back as one of the, the least of the workers on the property and try to earn his way back into his family's household. Wanted to earn his way back in, that's key as well. So here's what happens in verse 20. He rehearses this apology. It says he, he arose and came to his father, but while, <laughs> this is crazy, man. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Everything about that verse is mind blowing for so many different reasons. When we relate the father to God and we relate the son to us, we can gather that the father was probably anxiously awaiting the return of his son. He was probably sitting day in and day out just watching and waiting for his son to come home. He's watching and waiting anxiously for his son to come around that corner. And when he does, he runs. He doesn't just sit there and wait. He doesn't just sit there and allow the son to have that, you know, that long walk of shame, you know, and you know, just whatever the son must have been thinking for that long walk and all the emotions and all the thoughts and all the shame but instead he runs, he takes off running. And Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, which by the way, it's a short little read, but it's an incredible book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. I would encourage you guys to pick that up and read it. But he says, as a general rule, distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. The dignified pillar of the community, the owner of the great estate would not pick up his robe and bare his legs like some boy. That didn't happen. That would have been shameful for him to do. And then John MacArthur in a study in his um, commentary I was reading had a really cool take on the event that I hadn't thought of before. But he says he wants to get to the sun before the sun gets to the village because as soon as that sun enters the village, he's going to be mocked and scorned and heaped upon with shame and ridicule, ridicule and the father runs through town and takes the shame to embrace the boy before he receives the shame. So in all aspects of that event, the, the father is trying to take the shame of the son on himself and be shamed himself. He ran, he embraced, and he kissed him. And the Greek word behind the word kiss is not just one kiss. It would imply that he just kissed him over and over and over and over and over. And it's just such a great moment. One of my favorite times of the day 
is when I come home and around that corner come my little girls and they're, they're saying, daddy, 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 and they're so excited and I get down on my knees and they fight over which side they're gonna be on and I grab them both and I kiss them all over their heads. They, they almost knock me over, but it's one of the sweetest moments of my day and that is like so minuscule compared to the idea of God doing that to us. But I think it's a great illustration of what that must have been like. Not that I'm coming home shamefully every day, but like just the idea of them running and, and wanting to embrace and, and just that, ah, oh, it's just such a great picture. And I'm sure in the, that moment, the son is feeling a little bit confused, maybe overwhelmed, but he begins his apology. Look at verse 21. And, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> this is so great. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. So the son's like, dad, I'm so sorry. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, man. Like go get my robe, go get my ring, get a pair of shoes and kill the, the, the cow because we're having a celebration. He doesn't even acknowledge that the son is apologizing. He doesn't have a conversation about it. He doesn't, you know, pander. He doesn't like, yeah, just, it's okay. I know, I know. It was like, okay, we're gonna celebrate that you're home. That's great, but we're about to celebrate. So he just completely blows off this apology that his son has probably spent so many, spent so many hours preparing. And the son's like, wait, 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 what? You know, like I, I thought I'd be coming home and, and I'd have to work my way back and I thought that you'd be mad at me and I thought that you would be, be angry and, and be ashamed and instead he wants to throw this massive giant party and that is so true of how it is when we come home to God and the celebration that takes place as we saw in the previous parable. So he brings him the best robe. The best robe would have been a sign of restored position in the family. So he's being brought back in the family. A robe was a symbol of that. Essentially, the father is saying, I will cover your poverty. I will cover your rags. I will cover your shame with my robe of honor. The, the ring that he put on his finger was a sign of authority. And, and oftentimes in, in, in that world, shoes were a sign of freedom. So each of these things that he puts on his son are, are showing him that he wants to restore him to full, if not even more honor than he had when he left shamefully the family before. It's as if nothing ever happened. And then the celebration happens. My son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. It's unbelievable and it's unconditional love to an extreme that we can't even comprehend in our finite minds. And it blows me away to picture me and God in that story. But there's a, there's a really important third part of the story and it's actually probably just as important if not more of what Jesus is trying to say, but we're actually not going to talk about it because of time. But the third part of the story addresses an older brother and that older brother is the religious leaders of that time, who, who he's talking to, right? Jesus is addressing these people and it's an older brother who is bitter because of the father's acceptance so easily of this younger son who has, has lived the way that he's lived. And so the self-righteous, rule-based salvation Pharisees that Jesus is talking to don't like that Jesus welcomes sinners so easily. And that, that older brother represents them. And that's a huge part of the story and I really don't like leaving that out, but we're going to. So I wanna relate that to us for a few minutes, all right? In the story, if you haven't caught on, in the story, the younger son is humanity. 
okay? It's humanity. And the father is God. The younger son is those who have not yet come to an understanding of a relationship with Christ, those who would not consider themselves Christians. But I, I, wanna, I wanna extrapolate a little bit deeper. Where's Hunter? I wanna extrapolate a little bit deeper, Hunter, okay? Hunter loves that word. And I threw it in there for you. I think it's also can associate with those of us who are Christians who have wandered, those who have turned our backs on God for a moment, those who have allowed culture to define our lives for whatever reason instead of Jesus. Because in all of the above, there's a great need for us to come home. And it doesn't matter if you're a believer of, of Jesus and you have a relationship, we can wander and, and we can grow distant sometimes in our lives and, and so we need to come home. And, and the beauty of this story is that God wants you to come home. He's anxiously awaiting you to come home. He, he won't hold his, your sin against you. He's not gonna have that conversation with you because Jesus took it on the cross so that that dusty road back home would be free and clear and there would be nothing standing in our way. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, 5, 8, Romans 5, 8, while we were still in our sin, Jesus died for us. Second Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We were created for relationship with God. Adam and Eve blew that, by the way. It was their fault, okay? So if you want someone to blame, blame them. And uh, they wanted what they weren't supposed to have, but God allowed them to have it as the father allowed the son to walk away. And as a result, we are all wanderers. We're spending our time, our efforts, our energy. We're spending our relationships, our talents, everything else about our lives, we're spending that wastefully apart from Christ. As the younger son, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2.1, but God sent Jesus on our behalf to die so that we may live. In the NIV application commentary, it says, God's attitude is seen in the longing father who longs to embrace the departing son and keep him as a member of his family, though he will not force him to stay home. When the son asks to go, he lets him walk out the door and go his own direction. Yet the father's response on his return makes it clear that he was thinking about the departed son all along. His quick embrace shows his love for the son was constant and the pain of his departure real. His forgiveness is total and immediate. There are no grudges. The past pain has been washed away in the waves of joy at the son's return. So why am I thankful on Thanksgiving weekend and every single day of my life? Because Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, sitting at the right hand of God in all his glory, saw us enslaved by the very thing that we thought would set us free and he emptied himself and came down from heaven in the most humble way possible as a servant. It tells us in Philippians 2, he laid aside, well, everything, but the, the immensities, the infinities, the, the glories, the awesomeness. And at the cost of his life, he paid the debt for our sins. And he purchased us the only place, the only, hear me, the only place that our hearts can rest. And that's in our father's home and so this morning, I don't know if it's that you don't know Jesus. I don't know if it's that you've been wandering. But God wants you to come home. And when you do, 
man, there'll be a celebration. That blows me away when it talks about the celebration of the angels. Angels are celebrating when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that blows me away that when I accepted Christ, there was a party happening in heaven because that's how much God loves you. Celebration, he wants you to come home. We're gonna sing one more song here at the end and the, the band can come out, but I want, to, I want to read the lyrics of this song to you because I think oftentimes we, we sing, I've been teaching our high school kids this over the last month, the importance of when we worship, really worshiping and not just singing to sing because we know the song, but meaning it and focusing on the words and crying out to God. And sometimes, if the song's not true of your life, not singing. But here's the song we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing a song called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And uh, here, here's, the, here's the lyrics. Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. This is the chorus. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Come home. God wants you to. He wants relationship. He's anxiously awaiting that. So let's pray sing and listen I, I know Scott will tell you this too maybe he won't now that I will but I'm going to be right down here and I'm going to ask Matt Rice to be right down here too because this is important stuff and uh, I don't want anyone to leave without considering coming home let's pray God thanks for today and thank you for your word and stories that are so true and so real to us and mean so much to us and uh Thank you for the power of forgiveness and the power of your son over the weight of our sin, over the death that we deserve as a result of our sin. God, I pray that no one would leave this room this morning without considering what a relationship with you looks like, what it means to come home. Those that have wandered, those that have decided to live for themselves, um, God, I pray that you would just challenge and convict them as well and, and bring them back to relationship with you because there's nothing like it. There's nothing sweeter. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Um, so God, just, um, just move in hearts this morning, I pray. Uh, in your son's name, amen.